0: Welcome aboard the USS Eranome. To become a member of our crew, please visit Perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to subdeck three to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard.
1: Sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps! Where's Baskin?
0: (sighs) Let's run! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am
2: your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Hi, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We have more new stuff to talk about, which is terrific. I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're spoiled this year. We've had interviews with like 300 authors so far, which is just incredible. And, and the writer true. we have on tonight is behind yet another new Alien product coming out shortly. So I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to talk about some other stuff related to comics and geekdom and novels. And um, our guest has an announcement also, a recent announcement of a book that I want to make sure he gets some space for. So, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. I'm excited to be here tonight. Me too. So would you... Like to so without, <laughs> I, I essentially just did. Yeah. So without further ado, tonight we're we're uh, really honored and excited to have Benjamin Percy on. Ben is a novelist, writer uh, behind many different projects, which I'm sure we'll talk about tonight. But most recently, and most you know notoriously for people listening to this podcast, uh, he's writing a double length one shot in celebration of the 35th anniversary of Aliens coming out this July, called Aliens Aftermath benjamin percy welcome to perfect organism how you doing
1: i'm doing great thanks so much for having me on
2: thanks for coming on and your your press release around this that marvel put out mentioned uh among other things when you were a kid you had a large poster of a xenomorph on your door <laughs> and it, you, you were yeah, a fan yeah. of the franchise sure.
1: most nerd xenomorph nerds are familiar with that poster oh
2: i knew exactly the one that you were yeah. talking about when i read and that's
1: that. i would lay down every night. And that's what I'd be staring at as I drifted off to sleep. So that's one of the reasons that my hard wiring might be a little off.
2: (laughs) I think you're in good company. So I'm I'm wondering when we have people on the show for the first time, we like to start with a little bit of a glimpse into sort of, you know, who they are as alien fans. So like, what's your, what's your relationship with this franchise and how far back does it go?
1: It goes back to, uh, I guess, third, fourth grade. And I was reading the comics to begin with, and I still have them. I've got them right here. Uh, The Dark Horse comics. That's what got me into the franchise. I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies, uh, and I wasn't even allowed to watch PG-13 movies. But thankfully, we all have that neighbor, right? The neighbor who has HBO, the neighbor whose parents are never around. Uh, So despite the fact that I was not permitted to watch Batman, or to watch aliens, you know, I snuck over to Peter's every now and then, and, uh, you know, checked out everything from, uh, those titles I already mentioned to revenge of the nerds to American werewolf in London to night of the creeps. I mean, I could just go on and on and on about all the different, awful, wonderful movies that I watched at Peter's house that, you know, kept me up through the night. Uh, and I've, you know, through the years, just watched and rewatched and rewatched those movies so that sometimes it feels as though they're, you know, on a, a subconscious level, just there waiting, like muscle memory. So that if I hear a certain sound cue from the film, or if I see a certain image or encounter a certain person on the street, even with a facial scar or they're, you know, they're they're strutting in, in a certain way or, or whatever, you know, it just triggers memories of the films. So they're formative, in other words. The first film is incredible. I love them equally for different reasons, Uh, but the first film Feels a little bit more moody, mature, patient. Uh, it's a horror film. It's a haunted house film in a way. Uh, the second film is James Cameron. I mean, it it, it never lets up. You know, it's it's a, it's an action movie as much as it is a sci-fi movie. And I was completely in love with that sort of full-throttle entertainment with the dashes of horror thrown in.
2: You know, it's a good point that the comics that you were reading were part of your gateway into the film that you first latched onto, because I think for for a lot of of people say, you know, between the ages of, say, seven and 11, they got into the Alien franchise. And usually, regardless of which one they see first, Aliens is the one that they seem to kind of latch onto first. I know it's the case with my kids. It was the case with me. That was the first one that I really was like super, super into. And part of it is because there's all this inbuilt franchising (laughs) around Aliens, right? Whereas like with, with Alien, sure, there were like the early Kenner things that came out and like the one-off but other than there wasn't this whole kind of media empire built up ready to go whereas when aliens came out you know within a few years you had the dark horse comics this you know that incredible ongoing series and then you had all the branching you know colonial marine series coming out of that and then you had the kenner toys and you had all these other things so um right, right. And yeah, there, aliens you know,
1: star log magazine there's vangoria there, yes. Fangoria, there yeah. were all these other things that I was pulling off the grocery store shelves that were informing my understanding of the film long before i ever saw it
2: Right. Famous monsters of film land. There's a lot of, a lot of good ones back then. So yeah. So, so aliens was, was, was your first love. Um, has that changed at all through the years? Or is that still your, for you, like your kind of linchpin into the franchise? I, I
1: guess you could say it was my first love. I think maybe my sensibilities align a little bit more with alien now. Uh, I've rewatched them both recently with my son who is just turned 15 and the grittiness of the first film and the working class characters that I really connected to the, the, uh, the way in which everything turns on a hinge, you know, I feel like there's so many elements in, in this, in the story too, that were instructional to aliens, that aliens was in a way an homage in a way to the first film, uh, in so many ways, you know, the way in which Weyland Jutani turns on, on, on the cast, the way in which, uh, you know, there's that moment, uh, when they're looking at the cameras, right. It's very similar to the moment when they're looking at the tracking devices in the first film, when, um, you know, he's going through the ventilation system. And, and so it feels like, I don't know, like when I watch stranger things right now with my, my kids, I realize that they're getting their eighties, like source material, secondhand. They're experiencing, you know, something that is nostalgia, but it's their primary source. Right. And in a way, that w- that's what happened when I watched Aliens. Is that I was kind of watching a Stranger Things version of Alien, and that Cameron is tipping his hat all throughout. He's obviously doing a lot of original stuff as well, and he's cranking up the octane. He's, you know slamming the accelerator he's broadening the scope in every way but nonetheless alien is the egg the original egg and it has primacy to me for that reason you know it was such a uh an original work and you know we're still talking about it all these decades later because ridley scott you know and, and everybody else involved in that project from the art design team to the actors, right. That they put something, put forward, something really special.
0: The comics you were reading before you saw aliens, was it Newt's tale? Yeah. From dark. Or- okay. Uh, but I, I remember
1: reading them and, and, and it opens nice. up with Newt having a nightmare. Right. And I was just so curious about who, what was, what was going on with this character? Why was she so scarred? Uh and getting glimpses of the past but not really understanding you know the shadows that clung to her until i saw the film and you know what's the line that she has about you know they come out at night loosely you finally <laughs> to know what that line means
2: yeah, yeah yeah for sure in terms of revisiting aliens for its anniversary how did this come about were you approached by marvel or what was the what was the chain of events that led to this aftermath project
1: I was, you know, I write Wolverine, I write X-Force. I'm in pretty regular touch with a lot of the editorial staff at Marvel. And uh, Jacob Thomas is um, an editor on the X-Books as well. When I heard about aliens and and Predator coming over to Marvel, you know, uh, I immediately gave Jake a tickle and said, you know, if there's ever an opening, you know, give me a taste of that. Uh, thankfully, it was almost a year later. You know, you reached out and said, "Hey, here's this opportunity," and I jumped at it.
2: Awesome. What was that like? Was that was that a pretty exciting moment? Yeah.
1: You know, all working for Marvel, and, and I know it sounds a bit corny to say, but it's a childhood dream come true. You know, here I am, at four years old, five years old, reading Wolverine and the X Men. Here I am at 40, writing them, you know, in the same way. Here I am at seven, eight, nine, reading Aliens comics, watching the films. Here I am, uh, so many years later, uh, putting my own little dent on the franchise. Um, you know, I, I'm a custodian of, of these characters, I'm a custodian of, of Logan. And and X Force, um, in the same way, custodian of the Xenomorphs, you know, it's going to pass to another hand soon. Um, but you know, what a pleasure, what an honor, what a thrill to to be able to play in that sandbox for a while.
2: Yeah, man.
0: So, how do you even approach a 35th anniversary two shot? Like, how do you? Were there conversations like we need to keep this? In the same world, because, uh, you know, as the synopsis um, hints at, we're going back to LV426 yep, post yep. nuke um, to see what's going on there. Of course, we've seen some imagery from the comics uh, showing a, an alien that can glow in the dark or something. We're not, obviously, we're not sure what's going on there, but how do you approach something like this where y- you want to tell us this story, but were you given, were you given like, hey, do whatever you want to, or were they like, no, you should stay in the world that James Cameron built?
1: The prompt was, it's 35 years later. Okay. Yeah. James, you're, you're, you're picking up the baton from James Cameron. Go. Got it. And let's see what you got. Wow. So this, I, I did the same thing here that I do every time I write a comic. You know, I immerse myself in the source material. So let's say I'm writing Wolverine or I'm writing Green Arrow. You know, I dig deep, I reread, I rewatch. I oftentimes take notes in the same way that I took notes with Jeff Johns when I was assigned Green Arrow and Teen Titans. We sat in a room at DC headquarters in this office room that was on one wall, windows looking out on Burbank, and the other wall was floor-to-ceiling whiteboard. And we sketched out who are the best Green Arrow characters. Who are the best sidekicks? Who are the best villains? Who are the best love interests? What are the core elements of the character? What are the worst storylines? What are the weakest elements of the franchise? And so on until we came up with something that was honoring that legacy, but was not a cover band. Because what fans want is elasticity, right? They want it to feel like their character their story, their franchise that's familiar to them, but they want every creator to put their own unique stamp on it. You know, you don't want Wolverine to retire to Boca Raton and play shuffleboard all day, uh, but you do want them to do something different. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about the fans when I say that, but I'm also thinking about myself because I don't, I don't want to be doing karaoke. You know, I, I, I want to be, you know, give, giving this franchise that I love a signature moment. With that said, here I am looking at the source material and here I'm imagining what would happen three, five years later. I'm thinking about favorite characters and favorite elements and how to skew them. Uh, You know, the general storyline is this. I won't get into too much spoilery material, but uh, you have a character named Cutter Vasquez. And he is the nephew of Vasquez the Colonial Marine, one of my favorite characters from the film. And he is part of a news crew that I guess you could say is something like Vice in that it's a kind of down and dirty <laughs> news crew. You know, it's a, it's called Rebel XM, and they have a Holo news feed that's, um, you know, widely watched, widely followed. But they're always doing, uh, you know, sort of in-the-trenches reporting. And one of the things that Cutter is motivated by is his hatred of Wayland yutani So there's oftentimes, you know, some frontline terrorism going on as well. Uh, some activism, I guess you could say, as they blow a fuel station or as they, uh, you know, break in and, and rip off some data drives. And in doing this, they uncover some lost files, some files that were wiped. So, some data drives that were dumped. And this treasure trail leads them to Hadley's Hope. Oh. And he knows some things about his lost aunt. You know, he knows, you know, just he's cobbled together clues over the years. And so they're going there not only to hide out from the company because they've done some bad shit, And, you know, they're in the crosshairs, but they also go and and their ship ends up damaged as well. I won't say how, but they end up going there to, you know, play detective as well. And I was thinking about this planet, right? You have this, this nuclear event, the atmosphere processor blows, what happens? You know, xenomorphs are the perfect organism, Mm -hmm there has to be some way for them to endure. And if you have a kind of nuclear winter that set in, what does that look like? What would a xenomorph look like in a profoundly cold environment? And so I started to play around with that notion, you know, a winter whipped planet, uh, and and the image of something rose in my mind and that was you know a figure that was glowing through that that blur of a blizzard you know approaching almost in a like a phantasm through the dark and so started to play around with that more and more as i conceived of uh, what i guess you could call an atomic alien (laughs)
2: it's <laughs> fucking badass i like that
1: <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot more to it than that but there there you have like the first few germs of an idea
2: there's that's a and and that all fits within one issue
1: it's i mean i basically wrote a mini movie maybe a one hour film
2: okay how, how many pages approximately is it like 48 something like that Something like that yeah yeah. So, so you, in terms of, uh, you know, going about writing, we, we've had a couple of comic uh, writers on the show over the last like four or five months, which has been great. And we've been getting some different insights into the creative process. I, what I haven't heard yet is what you're, um, talking about in the beginning, which I love this idea of sort of like immersing yourself into what you have to play with, like what the sandbox looks like when you're going into an established right. franchise and like green arrow, like you mentioned, I know you, you also were on that for a while, um, that's, you know, long storied history. People grew up with that, with those characters, you know, how do you reinterpret them? I have a friend who uh, was contracted to do dark horse work back maybe about 15 years ago. And he said that dark horse was like, not only was there a brand Bible and like a sort of a story Bible for it, but that they were like very much, you know, you, there are things you just like cannot touch in this franchise from our conversations with people like Philip Kennedy Johnson lately. It seems it seems like Marvel is very much kind of like. Let's try stuff out. Let's sort you know, there are are fewer sort of sacred cows to avoid, it seems like. What has the process been of, you know, this is a new franchise for Marvel to have, right? So they only had it for about a year and a half, two years or so. Um, What's the process like with Alien and Marvel? Or is it? Is what's that working relationship like from your eyes?
1: The approval process really all went through 20th century. Uh, Marvel was up for anything. Uh, we just had to work within the parameters of 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox was uh, completely okay. amendable to everything that I proposed. You know, they made a few touches here and there, like oh, make sure that the Xenomorph's fingers are fused. Make sure that, da-da-da-da. you know. But but by and large, they were they were excited about some of the things I was reinventing, including, before this isn't another too much of a spoiler, but uh, uh, you know, Mother, another play on Mother
0: mother of the oh, ship in nice. the ship
1: awesome the intelligence system yeah yeah the very cool intelligence system here. Uh,
0: what i i do right off the bat run right, when I was reading the you know, the brief synopsis for the, the issue, is that it wasn't more Marines going back to LV-426, which was a completely different, like, yes, you're going to a familiar planet with people who we aren't familiar with. It's, it's, and that was really different, because most of the time in, within the alien universe, certainly in comics, it's a version of the same kind of group of people. Um, coming back. And I was like, wow, okay. So this is like a news crew in some ways going to st- an investigative team, essentially what happened here. Um, and I-, I love that setup. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I champion news stories for alien. Cause they tend to dance around the same kind of world a little bit with the same, the same version of the same character. Essentially, yeah, well, I
1: mean, and- and- Detectives and reporters make for great characters because they're, not only always hunting something, but they have reasons to ask questions (laughs) and to to suss things out to try to explain what's happening. So they're good organic vehicles for exposition. Uh, And, you know, I mentioned before that one of the things that I love about Alien is just how gritty it is. Uh, It's true of the franchise as a whole, right? There's something, like you look at the ships compared to a ship, say, in Star Trek. You know, Star Trek is... Is trashless, an antiseptic environment. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at the ship in Alien, you know, you can run your finger along the dash and and pick up the dust. You know, everything looks sort of like a factory got uh, rocket boosters tacked onto it (laughs) and and everything is weighty Mm -hmm. and scratched. And I wanted to do the same thing with this news crew to be true to that. You know, I didn't want these these people to be slick in any way i didn't want them to have coiffed hair and you know white teeth and to be the kind of folks you see on broadcast news i wanted them you know probably to be instead the, the types of reporters who snore too much adderall and drink too much coffee and <laughs> you know s- sleep in their clothes because they're so desperate to get the story out
2: you know, we actually, we were just talking about this on, we, we had an In Memoriam episode for and Koto who passed in March. Um, yeah. uh, we played Parker in the film. And we were talking in the context of that episode for some reason about how uh, how rare it is to see characters in space who aren't like the exceptionalists, right? Like it, it feels like so many space stories, they're for like the chosen people who could afford to get in space in the first place or who were exceptional enough to get in space in the first place for like for the astronauts out there, right? But what's so refreshing about it alien and about all these times that we get to revisit this universe is that there is no guarantee that the people in space Are the captains of great vessels, right? A lot of the time they're blue collar workers. A lot of the time they're, you know, what you're like, what you're talking about, like renegade news crews. It's it's people sort of on the fringes who are in space not because they're there for some great ideal of space exploration, but because they're trying to make a living or they're trying to get at the truth or or they're, you know, they're not they're not trying to show off for anybody. So I like that you're you're saying that, and I'm just sort of vibing with it because we were talking about it. I have to say I I feel like in your work, you know, you also did uh, the Batman Detective Comics series, right? Right. Um, I, I, there's a through line of using this device that you were talking about, which I love of, of detectives and investigation as a tool to get exposition in a way that's not hackneyed or, you know, overused, um, I do have to go back and fanboy for a second about something we were talking about before we started recording, which is that you wrote the Wolverine series that was the two season Marvel podcast, which is just extraordinarily good, starring Richard Armitage, incredible audio drama. Um, And my favorite aspect of that, I mean, I love Wolverine as a character, every single person who, you know, is remotely involved in comic books in any capacity in the late 20th century is a Wolverine fan, right? Obviously.
1: You know, the podcast that you're talking about, I did exactly what you mentioned right created uh, a vehicle through which the story could be told because audio dramas just broke it broke my brain once i actually had to sit down and figure out how to tell a story because how do you you know how do you translate what is principally a visual medium wolverine you know in a berserker lunge wolverine slashing and hacking how do you how do you translate that to the to one's ear how do you write a fight scene for audio right and not completely confuse your audience. But it's not just that. It's how do you anchor your audience in a moment so that they know what the weather is, what time of day it is, whether they're in a kitchen or a garage or a cave or dockside or whatever. You know, I was looking to other mediums. You know, I always do the homework. So I was talking before about rereading all of the Green Arrow comics or all the Wolverine comics. And this what this time what I did was I listened to a bunch of podcasts, and what I saw in Serial, what I saw in S Town, what I saw in uh, Homecoming is a model that I mimicked. They're all told in the interrogative mode, right? In In Homecoming, it's a it's a therapist talking to a patient. In S Town and Serial, it's these reporters on the move, chatting people up. Trying to get stories, and oftentimes those stories are conflicting. So in this case, I put these federal agents as the POV, as the point of view. Right? You're always with them, or you're with their surveillance devices. Everything is right. through them, right? And as a result of that, you can do things like, you know, say, say they're inter- interviewing somebody, right? Some guy who was uh, captaining a vessel. The guy, as they start to ask questions, can be like, yeah, it was, you know, 4 a.m. and I was heading off the docks and there's a thick fog rolling through and the waves are rolling over white. And I came up on this ship, this unmoored ship that seemed to be vacant of any crew. And then I got on board. And then once you do that, you can start to ease into the actual moment. You know, you seep into the past and it takes over. And you can hear the waves and you can hear their boots squeaking on the deck and you can hear the hinge or the hold as it opens up and the click of the flashlight, look down and see the bodies, you know, along with the fish beneath and, and all that stuff. And that seemed to me such an efficient way and an organic way to deliver information as opposed to if you're just following characters around in a, in an I guess more naturalistic way, you're just on their shoulder. Then they have to do stuff like say, here we are walking in, you know, towards old man withers home (laughs) i wish it wasn't raining outside uh and on this day five years ago he murdered his wife with an axe uh and his house has been abandoned ever since but do you hear that inside just now you know (laughs) it's corny as hell uh so yeah that was that story broke my brain It, it helped me create new techniques uh storytelling techniques and and I'm still in the audio game. You know, just today it was announced on June 1st. I've got um, Old Man Star-Lord rolling out. It's oh, shit. Guardians, of the, Guardians of the Galaxy. It uh, comes out on June 1st. It stars Chris Elliott, Timothy Busfield, Vanessa Williams, Danny Glover. And it's 30, you know, it's, it's in the future. It's a, a apocalyptic Marvel, kind of Mad Max Marvel. Mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy come back. They're, they mostly work as scavengers and smugglers. Uh, it's just Rocket and Quill. We don't know for a while what happened to the rest of them. Uh, And then they show up on Earth on this mission and discover that most of the heroes are dead and the villains have taken over.
2: Whoa, that's great. I can't awesome. wait to hear that. Well, I was so blown away by, by how, especially the, the long night plays the first season of the Wolverine show really plays like a horror, um, project for, for a lot of it. Because for one thing, the, the narrators that we're sort of experiencing it through are, uh, well, not really narrators, but the, the people, you know, whom we're experiencing it through, the agents, uh, are kind of disoriented about what they're seeing, right? Like things aren't quite adding up. And it's kind of, it's frightening because you go into this thinking, oh, it's like a Marvel Wolverine podcast. I know what to expect. And then you're like, what the hell's actually going on? And it's, and it's very frightening. Kind of pulls you down deeper into this mystery and this, you know, in this endless winter landscape. It's so cool. But what I, I remember specifically, th- I, sh- I sent this to Jamie when it was first airing. I don't know if you remember. This is like this is 2018, right? This yeah, I 20- do remember. I do. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and I was to like, it, yeah, I yeah, remember that because because yes. we do a lot of audio drama work, and I was like, listen to what they're doing with this Marvel show. It's yep. so immersive and interesting. Yep. Um, and 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 I remember specifically we it talked sounded about how like the, a movie. It sounded very cinematic. And it felt a lot, a lot like Alien to me in the, in the beginnings of it because it's just like there's a lot of kind of shocking images that are kind of – they're they're jarring. And because you can't see it because it's an audio format, your imagination has to do the work of filling in what that would actually be like. And maybe it's because I had a fucking Alien poster on my door too as a kid. But my, my imagination was freaking out during that show. Yeah, you so, know, I kind
1: of think of, of audio dramas as – Situating themselves somewhere between film, TV, and novels. and novels, you're making the audience do all the work. They're uh, a sit forward. It's a sit forward medium, right? You're reading a novel, and out of this ink and paper, you build flesh and blood in your mind. You know, you build people, you build worlds. You, you're a conjurer. You're you're complicit. Uh, you know, a movie or a TV show is much more of a sit back experience. It's not that you're not maybe building connections if you're watching whatever, Mayor of Easttown, you're trying to figure out, you know, who done it. Uh, but in general, right, you're being fed gerbil pellets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and if you listen to an audio drama, by contrast, uh, you're just given enough, right? You're given the creak of a door. You're given a, a teapot on a stove. You're given dialogue and sometimes that dialogue becomes a monologue that takes you into the past and and you know gives you a a sensory firsthand experience but the way in which the podcast occupies that sort of ghost lands you know in between the two where you have to build the world in a way that i guess makes it makes you a co-author and i think that that is especially suited to suspense and horror, right? Because Stephen King says that the greatest moment in any horror film, an alien lives up to this in a big way. The greatest moment in any horror film is when the character reaches for a door after hearing a strange noise behind it and they put their hand towards the knob and it's right then. That's the greatest moment in a horror movie because the moment when the door finally opens and the monster leaps out, Everybody in the theater screams, but that scream is soon followed by a laugh because whatever it was that came out, whatever CGI, you know, or or (laughs) puppetry that left out of that closet, it's not as bad as you imagined.
2: Yeah, right. Right? And that scream is a release in a way, right? It's a it's a catharsis almost, right? Yeah, like, that's, what,
1: that's what podcasts do to you they give you they give you that doorknob in a way you're always reaching for it you're always contrary and, and alien does that so often right like imagine when you think about him going through the ventilation system especially like that and i think that's one of the scariest scenes in cinema um and you just get that one flash right that flash is the monster leaping out of the closet at last and actually, because it's a xenomorph, morph it, it's, it's actually worse than I imagined.
2: <laughs> <laughs> One of few monsters that can truly, you can say that about, yeah.
1: Truly, right? The shark comes out and you're like, that doesn't look real. <laughs> <laughs> right. The xenomorph leaps out and you're like, oh, shit.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Go back in the closet.
0: <laughs> um, I'm curious what, uh, in terms of talking about character and as, as it relates back to um, this 35th anniversary issue, when you think of Alien... Uh, the the canonical first trilogy, the first three films. I mean, sure, it could be Ripley, but is there a character that when you think of these films comes to mind that you're like, I'm in?
1: I love the the robotic characters, you know, the the droid characters, Bishop especially. You know, I was talking about how Cameron was tipping his hat to the original and you're meant to believe that Bishop is going to turn on them in the same way that Ash did. Uh, But... You know, I love the, the hat trick there where he actually becomes, you know, the almost a father figure, the protective figure. Um, a little bit of revisionary work there. I mean, Ripley's transition is really interesting. She's the centerpiece of them all. The way that she goes from, you know, the rigid rule follower to a more maternal, warm character, sort of familial character in the second film. I love that transformation. Uh, but, you know, I like obnoxious characters, so, <laughs> Vasquez and Hudson stand out. Um, you know, Hudson's always whining. Vazquez <laughs> is always, you know, flexing. These characters really don't have a lot of lines. I, I haven't read the screenplay for Aliens, but I can't imagine that they pop in the same way. These actors did such a good job. Maybe Cameron did such a good job. Just in the small space that they have, this large crew comes completely to life and Hudson is somebody whose lines I'm always repeating you know yeah. whenever I'm smacking a ping pong ball or whatever I can't help but you know say game over man <laughs>
2: yeah yeah it's interesting how hands off that is in aliens like there you got the sense that Cameron was probably not directing them to do a lot of those character choices but it was more because he, he was so fixated on making sure that the edit was going to come out right making sure that the the, the tech was working properly, that the VFX were looking good, um, making sure that the story was moving in the right way. That You get the sense that they were just spending so much time together that they kind of fleshed out these characters and pushed them in these directions that ended up being a little bit kind of bonkers, but in a way that just works so well. And and it's and I think part of why they're so quotable and so fun and so memorable, um, is because there's so much of the actors themselves, you know, at their best in these characters. They're so at home in those characters. I think in the movie.
1: Indeed. and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Burke because, you know, his his sliminess, he seduces you as a viewer. You want to believe in him, and that turn hurts all the more, even though you should know better. <laughs> you know you. Uh, uh, but, but Cameron does uses misdirection with Bishop, you know, you think the turn will come there or you, th- or you think that the, the, the actual bad guy is going to be maybe one of the higher ups, uh, you know, in, among the colonial Marines, but no, it's, you know, it's Burke and just his weakness, uh, that that's something that it, it bothered me so much. And I, I wanted because I have that kind of raw nerve reaction to him, that's something that actually plays a really important role in in this comic.
2: Awesome, awesome.
0: curious, what made you think, let's bring a Vasquez back into this? I love the character of Vasquez. I think she could have her own backstory. Um, And I think part of the genius of what James Cameron did, which was also the genius of what Ridley Scott did, but Dan O'Bannon's script, they introduce characters where you don't need a backstory. Those characters were good enough that you didn't need a backstory. And these days, in a lot of media, it's always, oh, flashback backstory. Let's if you're right, in my opinion, if you're writing a, a character well enough, you don't need a backstory. And none of those characters in Alien had a backstory. None of them in Aliens did either. And it didn't matter because we accepted we accepted them for who they were. For who they are. Um, And I think Vasquez, for me, and if we, for instance, if we share uh, an image of Vasquez on social media, people go apeshit for her. And she's a curious character because she is... I'll just use... She's she's kind of like a stereotype even though stereotypes are around for a reason because people act certain ways. It's just the way life is. But you see this woman who is not... Uh, cl- a classic woman in the sense where she's not effeminate. Um, she's very tough. She's rigid. She's kick ass and men fall in line for her. Like, fuck yeah, Vasquez. And that is not something that you see in fandom. No one comments on how she looks or her mannerisms or whatever. They accept her just for who she is. And the more you feed them Vasquez, the more they want her. She's a fascinating character. So I'm curious uh Why her? Why bring someone back that's related to her?
1: Well, I wanted to create a a central character who was ruthless and tough and determined. And, you know, I imagined him covered in scars. I imagined him as somebody who would never flinch at this overlord corporation. Mm -hmm. So it made sense for the bloodline to carry over there. You know she'll blow herself up to take out a xenomorph she'll spit in the eye of command she'll do whatever it takes to you know muscle through a situation yeah so that's that was that was the inspiration i also thought that there would be this is secondary but i imagine there would be easy visual signatures as well when, when they were investigating the ruins you know you imagine which which weapon stands out among all the colonial marines <laughs> right. right yeah that's Smart the guy. one you find yeah uh, right. you imagine okay which which character has the body armor with the catchphrase you know scratched up you know there you go like the, there's certain ways that you can uh create visual ligature between the past and the present and she supplies that as well in a way that some of the others don't
2: that's awesome I can't wait. She's such a great character. She's such a fucking badass. I want to say, speaking of the, the, the catchphrases scrawled on her armor, listeners out there, there's a shirt that I designed like five years ago for an alien day, or I guess it was probably three years ago, that says, La Riesga Siempre Vive, her, which is her catchphrase, the risk always lives. And it's in the same fucking writing that she has. And we've yeah. only sold one of them. And it's <laughs> for my wife. So Michael wears it all the time. And everybody just assumes she's like speaking Spanish. But it's Vasquez's armor uh, thing. So pick that up on our store if you haven't done that yet. Now, she's a, she's a great a great character. So I'm, I'm, any chance to revisit her in any way is a chance well taken, I think. Um, I want to ask you about the artist that you're working with with, you know, you're mentioning visual signatures, right? Like that you're thinking as a, as somebody who's writing a comic book, you know, you're thinking in terms of the, you know, framing and what's going to be in the shot, you know, etc. Um, How much, how direct was your working relationship with him on this issue? And, you know, is this, how did it compare to other experiences you've had?
1: Yeah. When I was talking to to Jake and Shannon, the editor and assistant editor of the series uh, about artists, I said, I want somebody who's got grit. I want somebody who's got a rough line. I want somebody who captures a lot of detail and doesn't have, because I feel like the the backgrounds in alien and aliens are as important as, you know, the characters in the foreground, you know, sometimes out of time necessity, as well as maybe the occasional bit of laziness (laughs) can, can have sort of washed out backgrounds. Um, I wanted somebody who loved the franchise and we, you know, threw out a bunch of names and I was through the yard and like, what about Dave Watcher and, you know, just seeing his stuff. He's just got all those anchoring details, great characterization, just a rough and tumble uh, sort of way of drawing and, you know, the characters, the characters come alive on the page and he's, he's good with drama, good with good with acting, which is, you know, in those quiet moments and you have to have quiet moments along with the mayhem, you know, it, it has to carry across. It has to, it has to connect your audience. That's a lot harder to do with comic book art than it is with the film. when you can have somebody, you know, walking around and pulling their hair and uttering out scene-chewing dialogue. Um, so, you know, the, the, the story is essentially, it's very cleanly constructed with three acts. And the first act, is a little quieter is a little more like alien the second act is dawning horror the third act is is carnage absolute carnage so you know having that progression yeah there's a lot of different artistic muscles that have to play out and he nailed them all
2: so when you're working with with an artist like Dave Watcher who has you know his own style he has an aesthetic to it. Do you have any say in how he uses that in in this book? Like, how direct are you in terms of... Because he gets the script from you, right? He gets the, the full thing from
1: I mean, you. As a, as a comics writer, it's kind of like writing an aggressive screenplay, I guess you could say. In a standard screenplay, you're not supposed to say what the camera is doing, right? You're supposed to uh, write in such a way that the director, the cinematographer can imagine that on their own uh, or, or make those decisions on their own. Sometimes in comics, you can be a little pushier. You know, you can say close. You can say, uh, here's a visual reference I'd like us to use. You can say this should be in silhouette so we don't see too much detail. Uh, but no matter how persnickety and detailed my scripts might be, I always say at the beginning, you know, I trust you. I trust the artist's vision. This is a conversation. I'm unloading what's in my head. Feel free to correct me, revise me, push back, whatever. We're, you know, both strenuously trying to tell the best story that we can. So that, you know, relationship that I have with every artist is feels like a healthy one. Uh and you get to a point when you work with an artist long enough that, well, you're on the phone a lot or you're texting uh, or you just sort of anticipate each other's moves. <clears throat> That's how I am right now with Joshua Kassara, who I work with on X-Force.
0: Uh-huh.
1: You know, we have achieved a mind meld. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could probably hand him, you know, a blank sheet of paper and and he'd know what I was thinking.
0: Here's a layman's question. When you guys uh, have your story and you're getting things mapped out for whatever issue, let's, we'll just say alien, is there a process you go through um, to have someone read it and say, tell us, is this any good? How do you know what you're doing is good enough? Or is it just, you've been doing it long enough and you're confident? You
1: know, over time, what you do is you accumulate ghosts. The ghosts of editors pass, the ghosts of creative writing workshops past, the ghosts of critics pass, you know, they hover over you and maybe there's an angel in one ear whispering, you're great. And maybe there's an, you know, a ghost in the other ear whispering, like the devil, you suck. And, and sometimes you got to listen to the devil and sometimes you got to be encouraged by the angel. And, and, you know, at this point in my career, I guess that I have a pretty good sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: of, of how things are going. But the editors are there to slap you around. No, no. At Marvel, they won't hesitate to say this isn't good enough or let's rework this scene. Let's cut this character or the subplot and try something else out. And, uh, you know, working for Esquire magazine long ago, just to tell one particular story. I remember getting assigned a piece and it was supposed to be about april 20th and april 20th is a cursed day and it's also 420 which is you know, <laughs> it's also a cursed day in history all sorts of terrible things happen on april 20th you know hitler was born then columbine i think oklahoma city the Deepwater horizon oil disaster on and on and all these cursed wow. things happened. wow you're me to write a story that read like today's news because it, it would drop on april 20th and anyways I soaked up that mythology. I wrote the story. I handed it in to Esquire, and they wrote me back a one-line response, which was, you suck, (laughs) and this sucks.
0: (laughs) And and
1: he just put T. What he said was, this sucks, T. And I was like, okay, what am I to do with this response? I wrote another one. I handed it in. This sucks, too, T. I wrote another one. Oh, I like this image. I wrote another one with that image. You know, around draft 10, I was told he was going to give me a kill fee and I'm making Tyler sound really tough, you know, but in fact, he's, you know, uh, you know, New York editor wears a lot of scarves and Warby Parkers, but you know, he's, he can be mean as hell when it comes to, to (laughs) criticism. Uh, And anyways, I said, fine, I'll take your kill fee, which is a third of the price that we're going to, give you
2: oh kill fee oh i got okay and then i'll go
1: publish it someplace else assholes um and, and anyways he calls back 20 minutes later he's like you're just gonna give up so i wrote another draft that was the draft that they published right so i looked back on all those previous i'd written 130 pages for a 20 page short story that was eventually published wow and having gone through that school of journalism you know where they don't have time to screw around to be nice to puff you up you know it's like you do the job or you're out uh that has helped me refine my craft over the years just going through that that uh, just unforgiving blistering critique over and over with with glossy magazines
0: so then almost by default, you have your, that voice in you saying, okay, push this further. Let's go. You, you, you're discerning. So literary. Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't think that's what they would always say to me. People are reading this in airport bathrooms. Stop being so literary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I, I have read an Esquire magazine in an airport bathroom. I, I'm not going to lie. So, so you've you've written in a lot of different formats like you know you've done obviously comics and you've done glossy magazines yep, yep. and you've done a, a ton of novels which i'm i'm just now i uh, have your website up and taking a look at they all look freaking great so f- before we even get into any of that i have a quick question which is what's one that you recommend people who don't know you as a novelist start with just off the bat what what, what where would you where should people start if they want to see benjamin percy as a as a long form writer
1: Well, of course, I want to hype the new book, but I think we'll probably get to that. But I think Red Moon is probably one that that people go crazy for most often. Uh, You know, when I was breaking into comics, you know, just to, again, sort of circle back to how if you're a writer, rejection is a standard part of the game. Right. So I wrote four failed novels before I published one. When it comes to comics, I started submitting to DC in 2009. I think I sent about 40 different pitches to them over the years. No, 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 no. I mean, there'd be a conversation would I met up with Mark Doyle in New York for coffee. He toured me through the DC offices. You know, we had a strong enough conversation going on that eventually in 2014, he finally relented and said, fine, I give up here, write Batman. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that Detective <laughs> Detective Comics arc that you had mentioned before, you know, that was my right. debut. That's as auspicious of a debut as you get in comics. I was very lucky. And, and I recognized that, but it came after how many years of hearing no, right? And even that Batman script was a rejected film script that I wrote. I had sent hmm. it all around Hollywood, heard no from everyone, and I, I believed in the idea, and I just... It clicked on me that this doesn't have to be, right? This doesn't have to be a movie. This could be a comic. And what if I supplanted, you know, Bruce Wayne for this other character, who's sort of like Bruce Willis? And that, you know, Terminal arose from that, the storyline Terminal. So, what I'm ultimately getting at is that during this time, one of those pitches that I had sent to DC Comics was a Vertigo series called Red Moon. And one of the reasons that I was rejected over and over and over again by DC is because I kept pitching original creator-owned ideas instead of, like, (laughs) IP that already existed. Like, why are we going to give you a 30-issue original series when you've never even published a comic? (laughs) This is a good idea, but no. Uh, So anyways, I sent him Red Moon, and it's kind of an X-Men book in a way. I mean, it's about werewolves but it's about xenophobia it's about marginalism it's about an uprising uh and and anyways my agent was really into it she said why don't you make this a novel instead i had up to that point published what i guess you could say is more literary fiction and i just decided like i grew up on genre fiction you know i grew up on uh vampires and Robots with laser eyes and dragons and barbarians and woolly underpants. That's why I got into writing. (laughs) When I stepped into my first creative writing workshop, I was told over and over again, no genre, right? So all I read for four years or more was literary fiction. All I wrote was literary fiction. And I got to this point where I was like, you know, I'm a little bit, I feel like I've lost my way. I'm a little bit bored. And I started to recognize like identify most with people like margaret atwood or cormac mccarthy or dennis lahane or you know people who are neither fish nor foul neither literary nor genre like they've got these three-dimensional characters and these metaphors that glow and these subterranean themes but they've also got like a rip-roaring plot so that makes you turn the pages so swiftly it makes a breeze in your face you know i wanted to do that <laughs> and, and red moon was really me finally doing that in that you know it was uh, an all-out thriller, supernatural thriller with a lot of pretty sentences in it. <laughs> and, and I guess that's kind of my thing. Uh, you know I, I, w- I want to just give you an adrenaline- soaked story, but I also want to make you pause to marvel now and then.
2: So you have a new you have a novel coming out that's kicking off a, a trilogy, correct? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the book is called The Ninth Metal. It releases on June 1st. And you know, it's an age-old concept, sci-fi concept. Uh, Comet comes streaking through the solar system. We spin through its debris field. It introduces new matter to the world that upends the laws of physics, the laws of biology, the geopolitical theater, all of these things. And, and what I was essentially trying to do is create a trigger moment so that I might, having written for Marvel and DC all these years, create my own shared universe. And so even though it's a trilogy, it's not actually a trilogy. I'm calling it the Comet Cycle. Oh. It could be three books. I'm contracted for three books. It could be six. It could be nine. It could be 12. But these first three books all happen at the same moment so that you could read them in any order. Hmm. They all happen at the same moment in different parts of the world. And so the first book has to do with a strike that happens in northern Minnesota in the Iron Range, which is a place where all of the taconite, all of the iron ore that, you know, fed into our uh, steel mills, not just in America, but around the world, that used to be the hub. And there's been kind of a rust belt collapse there over time. Some taconite mines still exist, but, you know, it's sort of a place that's, that's in a state of collapse, and it's also in a wilderness area. And it just feels very frontier. And so I wanted to make a place that was sort of the middle of nowhere into the center of everything. Oh. This this metal strike occurs, and this metal has these properties to it uh, where you can you know, make connections to vibranium maybe, but it absorbs energy on a kinetic level. And so there's all sorts of weapons potential and energy potential to it. So you have Saudis and Chinese in Northern Minnesota. You have roughnecks, you have prostitutes, you have crime, it's kind of like a contemporary Deadwood. Uh, and along with that, so you have like a legacy mining family that's sort of like a sci-fi succession or co- sci-fi Corleone's at the center of it all. And yeah, it's uh, that's one book. The next book's called The Unfamiliar Garden. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. The other book has to, and it deals with like plant life, alien plant life. Third book, Is about dark matter takes place in alaska of course i always like the twist what what you thought was a comet like that's going to turn on its head a number of of mysteries are going to reveal themselves all the books are interconnected in interesting ways but but yeah that's that launches on june 1st um and i'm also working on the um adaptation of that sony picked up the rights
2: wow oh congratulations very exciting Great. Yeah. And the, and the, the second two come out next year, correct? They're, they're coming based yeah, I, out. I, I, I
1: want, I took a page from comics and that I wanted to create a shared universe, but I also took a page from comics, a cue from comics. And that I think it's so smart the way that books come out compared to the way that novels come out. Novels come out right now, right. As a $35 sometimes hardback. Right. And if I am hesitating to buy one and I'm in the industry, how does, how do most people feel? Uh, It doesn't make sense to me. Look at what comics do is doing instead comics. You put out a floppy for two 99 later on five of those floppies are compacted into a trade paperback a little bit later, a few trade paperbacks become a deluxe hardcover with bonus material, right? Cheap wide distribution creates word of mouth. The collectors then go to, the hardcover in the same way that collectors go to say, an aliens, you know, directors cut with bonus material. Right. DVD, Blu-ray, you know, that's, that's how you do it, I think. So part of my pitch was not just the story to Houghton Mifflin, that's not, I didn't just pitch them the story, I pitched them the marketing platform. So this comes out as paperbacks, six months apart, really quickly, uh, they're then going to be bound together later on as a deluxe omnibus with bonus material, including illustrations and ancillary short stories.
2: Wow. That sounds terrific. It
1: would be a completely failed idea in the way that I presented it. <laughs> I, I thought I needed to shake things up a little.
2: Yeah. Well, it's very it's very democratic. I love that. It's, it's like, you know, it, it, one of my favorite things about comic books is that they are – affordable enough for anybody who at least has a friend with a couple bucks to spare, right? So like when you're a kid, I mean, you know, before I even had an allowance, going to the comic store with my cousins and my uncles and and my dad, like, you know, somebody could bum me two dollars and I could pick up a silver surfer, right? And then, you know, you remember what that's like. And now when I go, when I take my own kids to the comic store, it doesn't take very much money for them to pick out what they want in addition to our pull box. And then they get their own pull boxes going. And before you know it, you know, you're spending more than a couple of dollars at the comic store, but you're getting an incredible variety of material to read and then to give out to your friends and to lend to people and to, and to be like, Hey, why don't you pick up my free digital copy of it and see if you like it. And if you do, you can buy it yourself, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, and seven 99 paperback to a little bit more than a comic, but it's a lot easier to drop eight bucks than it is to drop. Yeah.
0: Totally. Totally. Um, I know we got to wrap soon. My final question for you, Ben is what do you think about alien three? (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know I, it's been a while I need to rewatch it I love Fincher um and I'm I'm mostly forgiving of his movies even if I don't love them I still love them for the aesthetic and I know there's a lot of trouble behind the scenes stuff with that film that mm-hmm. you're, you're the expert on not me uh but the idea of a prison scenario and the idea of Ripley you know, not only with the shaved head, which feels like the natural progression of that badass character, but with, you know, an alien insider. Like, it's pretty good stuff. I it's have nice. fond memories, but I haven't studied it as religiously as I have the, the first two.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's up next in the queue that my son and I are going to watch. Nice.
2: Nice. Yeah. nice. It's my well, favorite. I, after I hope the, he
0: enjoys it. It's my favorite of the trilogy that I okay. watched the least.
1: That's good encouragement then.
0: <laughs> it's always hard no matter what you do to end a story it's yeah. always it's very difficult to satisfy millions of people um and we see that all the time in in media where a season of a show ends and you know this group of fans love it that group of fans hate it and they hate the the creators and they don't want you know i mean look at game of thrones which i think i don't think it really most people didn't like that ending um but i think with ripley it fe- it felt the most honest however for a lot of people who watched and love aliens like we do, they felt like, how could you do that to these characters that we loved? But that's what life does sometimes.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, And you see, you know, I write comics and I'm on Twitter. I get that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's what the mute button's for, of course. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, the other thing that I think about when it comes to comics and when it comes to films is something that I learned early on uh, when it comes to screenwriting and they're, you know, acronyms are annoying, I know. But this one stuck with me, and I think there's truth to it. MMM, moments make movies, right? And the idea behind that is that if you walk out of the theater five minutes later, five months later, five years later, typically there are going to be three to four images that that really spike themselves into your consciousness when you think of that title, you know, these will be in the trailer. These will be what you gaspingly recall to your friends over beers at the bar later. Do you remember that one scene? Right. And, and you know, if you think about Psycho, right, there it is. The spike in your brain. Mm-hmm. It's the shower scene. Right. And if you, if you think about comics, you can sort of do that, too. Like there are certain images, like the image that Barry Windsor Smith gave us for Wolverine of him with the Weapon X helmet on uh you know, when, i think
2: of the frank miller cover where he's where his, his face up close yep. right from Wolverine number 1 yeah
1: oh you mean this
2: <laughs> that's the one yeah
1: it's always right. within reach <laughs> <laughs> good uh but if you think about aliens right there are a few moments like that you know those moments that are that are indelible uh that burn through all the others and, and one of the big images comes from Alien 3 when Ripley's, you know, flinching back, the xenomorph looms close, and sniffs her and pulls away. Like that image of her cringing, like we all, we all have it in our heads right now, right? Mm-hmm. And that film gave it to us for the whole yeah. franchise, right? Alien 3 speaks to the whole franchise in that way.
2: Well, uh, we'll let you go. It's getting late. And I just want to, uh, on behalf of all of us uh, here at Perfect Organism, to thank you for coming on, to thank you for contributing to this awesome franchise, for giving us more great stuff to read. Um, Everybody go to BenjaminPercy.com, where you can get what he's up to. You can follow him on social media. He's a very active Twitter presence. I can personally attest to. Um, Anything else you want to leave listeners with where they can keep up with you? Mailing list, anything like that?
1: Yeah, follow me on, on Twitter. I am going to start a mailing list soon. I'm going to be one of those guys. (laughs) Um, so maybe subscribe or maybe not that's fine too but uh look forward to hearing everybody's response to the aliens 35th anniversary issue i had a hell of a lot of fun writing it i hope people have a hell of a lot of fun reading it
2: great well we are looking forward to it my friend thank you for coming on and we can't wait to read yes thank you so much thank you have a good night
0: bye For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit PerfectOrganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the
2: show, please visit PerfectOrganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.